Hey, fintech friends. fintech friend welcome to one of the best news and fintech podcasts out there i'm your host hannah femi williams so let's talk about the structure of this podcast we're going to go through the fintech of the week the news and have a friendly chat with this week's friend ben from nala oh my god i love this episode because i feel like we talk about so many interesting interesting points such as sending money to africa the responsibility of the diaspora and the future of the continent oh my god i absolutely love it after that there's a snippet of signals and a rundown of the latest fintech events oh i should also add nala is actually also releasing a product this month so watch out for this space okay here we go this week's fintechionary is m-pesa i decided to pick it because we do discuss africa money transfer cross-border transfers all these kind of concepts on this episode with my amazing guest so i thought it'd be nice to kind of pick something from that region of the world so M-Pesa is a mobile banking service that allows users to store and transfer money through their mobile phones. M-Pesa was introduced in Kenya as an alternative way for the population of the country to have access to financial services. Safaricom, the largest mobile phone operator in Kenya, launched M-Pesa in 2007. It has been a joint venture of Safaricom and Vodacom since 2020 and services from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique and Tanzania. Fast fact about M-Pesa, M stands for mobile and PESA, means money or payment in Swahili. There you go. I just found that out myself. This week in fintech. Okay, the news. Let's talk about all the biggest fintech stories of the last two weeks. Apple bought its tap to pay functionality to the UK, going live with Revolut and NatWest first, while Google enabled tap to pay on all Android phones via PayPal, Venmo, and Zettle wallets. Meanwhile, Revolut arrived in New Zealand and Solo Funds bought its unbanked loans to Nigeria. Hiring and payroll platform Gusto crossed 500 million in trailing revenue and partnered with Remote to help support international hires. The Bank of London, which is a clearing startup, applied for a UK banking license. And social trading app Shares received an EU stock trading license. African payment provider Flutterwave is getting into tuition finance and the Swiss Green Fintech Network uh, and the Swiss Green Fintech Network launched and bad news. Meanwhile, crypto custodian Prime Trust owes customers over 80 million that it does not have. Real estate investing platform Pierce Street filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Payoneer will lay off 9% of its team. And the FTC is coming after Walmart for letting scammers use its 100 transmitting service to steal hundreds of millions from customers. The SEC ordered Future Fintech Group to pay $1.6 million in fines over accounting lapses. And Revolut refunded customers' accounts, letting thieves steal $20 million from the neobank. Meet this week's guest, Ben, or Benji. 
Benjamin Fernandez is an award-winning Tanzanian speaker and entrepreneur. Ben grew up in Tanzania, then earned scholarships that took him to America for the first time at 17. At 21, Benjamin was the youngest African in history to be accepted into Stanford Graduate School of Business. He holds an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and exec ed from Harvard Kennedy School of Government, being the first Tanzanian to attend both institutions. Fernandez was previously a national television personality in Tanzania. And after that, he worked at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the US. In 2018, Fernandez founded Nala. And in 2020, Fernandez was listed as the 15th most influential Tanzanian. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Ben. It's nice to meet you again. Obviously, I have met you before once. I mean, I know your backstory. It's super, super interesting how you got to where you are. And I think it's a really good place to start. So do you want to just say, I'm sure you're used to saying it, like a a bit about yourself, how you got here, what you do, who are you, all these things. Cool. Great. My name is Benjamin Fernandez. I'm the founder and CEO of Nala. Uh, Home is Tanzania, East Africa. So that's where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Dar es Salaam. And uh, when I was 17, got a scholarship opportunity that took me to America for the first time uh, to live there and um, went and started studying there, Uh, got involved in payments through television. Uh, So I used to be a TV host on local TV, Uh, then moved to moved up in the in the TV industry, but more looking at uh, payments and uh, local payments through TV subscription. So enabling people to pay for TV subscription services through mobile money. That's how I got involved in the industry in the first place. And then the joke you tell your friends when you don't know what to do with your life, you go to grad school. Uh, so that's what took me back to America the second time. And, you know, really started looking at, you know, payments as an industry that I was really passionate about um, and really wanted to make a difference in the space. So the question I would ask myself is, why is Africa, which is the lowest income region in the world, the most uh, expensive to transact in? Um, and didn't make any sense for me. And so the question I would that keep me up at night is, how can we use technology to reduce the cost of global trade with the region uh, that I really care about a lot? So uh, that's the question uh, we answer at Nala and, and work towards solving every single day. Yeah, I mean, I have a specific anecdote from a couple of weeks ago um, when, I, when I was in Africa. Um, but before we kind of go into that, like, so I like, how would you explain what Nala is doing if, I was, if you were to explain it to like your grandmother? Like, how do you explain it in the most simple terms? Yeah, so we have two products. We have a consumer product, which enables people to send money from the UK, the United States and 19 European countries uh, to seven African countries today. Uh, so people can download an application on their phone and connect to any UK bank or US bank or European bank and send to every single bank account in most markets that we operate in Africa or mobile money wallets that we operate with in Africa. So the likes of M-Pesa, uh, MTN and so on in other countries. Uh, these are mobile network operators that provide a wallet for people to manage their finances locally in these regions. Um, so that's our consumer product. In our business product, we're basically building African payment rails, so enabling global trade for people who are trying to do businesses long term across the continent. So large companies that are doing cross-border trade and things like that, we have a knowledge for business product that uh, supports those sort of businesses. You can see it's definitely so needed in Africa. Like, And so my, my sort of tangent that I was going to go on, or my anecdote was I was in Gambia maybe three weeks ago and... I, although you don't operate in Gambia. Not yet, but Ga- Gambia is coming soon. Very soon, actually, a couple couple weeks away. Oh, it, that's amazing because it's needed. <laughs> um, but like, I'm, I'm Nigerian. So in a lot of ways, 
when every time I go to Africa, I go to Nigeria. And so although it's not perfect, I'm kind of used to the system. I understand the system. Transferring money is not impossible, but yeah, it's not as easy as like being in the UK. Going to Gambia was like a whole nother situation because it really took me back to like kind of, I guess, your kind of mission statement because pretty much everything is cash. Pretty much even staying in the fanciest hotel in the whole of Gambia, whatever. It doesn't really matter. No, you can't use a card. Every Everything is money transfer. Everything is cash. And actually, like being anywhere else, you need to have dollars a lot of the time. And I think it shows kind of where where Africa is in a lot of ways. Like, how have you seen it change since kind of starting Nala? Or what have kind of like the problems that you've seen? Like, do you have, do you have any sort of anecdotes like that? Yeah, I think... I think payments across the African continent are 1% built. I think there's so much more that's going to be built over the next five to 10 years. I think there is massive opportunity um, and challenges with building across the African continent from an infrastructural perspective. You know, there's some banking systems that, you know, need some work on. And and we like as Nala, but also many other incredible companies across the African continent, which I'm massively in support of, are, are working on trying to solve some of these things and reducing the cost of, simple transactions in Gambia, like yeah, like you described, or other countries around the the continent where you know, there's 54 or 55 countries in Africa, depending who you ask. Uh, but who's enabling the global world of commerce and trade with all these countries, right? The fact that you can't pick 10 countries across Africa that you can send money to directly within 10 minutes, and you can do that in Europe. Like, you know, when, when will that happen? You know, are we five years away? Are we 10 years away? Are we 15 years away from that happening? And so I think... There's a lot that's going to be built um, on the continent, and I'm really excited for the whole you know new generation of young tech entrepreneurs or even older tech entrepreneurs. I want to be biased, but you know who are really looking at the industry and trying to fix uh, these problems through technology. I think there is a massive opportunity there um, in terms of what impact it will create for the global world of trade, but also uh, enabling these economies directly locally and creating new job opportunities for people. I'll, I'll give you one example. You know, TikTok last year paid over $1.3 billion in gift cards uh, globally. Why? Why? You know, why couldn't they send that money directly to an M-Pesa wallet in Tanzania or, or, you know, an MTN or a Paga wallet in Nigeria or, you know, a UBA bank account there, right? And who's going to enable large global companies like that? They're trying to, like, build this whole new creator economy. Uh, when are African creators who are extremely talented going to be paid directly into their own wallets where they can use it in local fiat currency in their own market uh, versus getting sent a gift card that, you know, how many Netflix subscriptions are you going to buy for people? You can buy five, you know, you're not going to buy for the whole country, right? Um, you know, I met a friend who received recently received a gift card of like $1,400 and He's like, I don't travel. I don't have a passport. I don't know what to do with this, you know? So I, I think those are the sort of things that, you know, there, while there is a, like the continent is evolving and growing, like there's still a lot of challenges from an infrastructural perspective that, you know, companies like ourselves, like Nala, uh, really work hard day in, day out to try to resolve. When it comes to Africa or any country, it's not, I mean, any continent or anywhere, smartphones are everywhere and they're so ubiquitous. So, it's, you know, smartphones have essentially made it that it's not they they've kind of bridged this gap that we used to have when it's like uh, one country's like this one country's like that everyone has a smartphone and i think africans in a lot of ways is ahead when it comes to kind of how people use smartphones or how people transfer money in smartphones what what do you what do you see as like kind of i guess the hopeful elements where you could say like 
things are moving ahead and the infrastructure is being created. I'm excited for what the future of the African tech space is going to look like over the next five to 10 years with what's going to be evolving and built in the region. I think there are people who are focusing on the problems in these markets, and I think that's going to be massively impactful for what the, the value of the solutions that they create. And I think we're going to see the long-term value of this over the next several years, not maybe not even today, right? And even with simple items such as infrastructure locally in the market, like how are we doing that at a scale that enables even intra-Africa trade? For example, today, Nigeria trades a lot with the UK or other countries, or, or Ghana trades a lot with European markets. Like Tanzania buys butter from Europe instead of buying it right next door from Kenya. Why, right? Like as logistics start to get better, as trade starts to get better, as transportation starts to get better within both countries, like how do we make these cheaper versus that Swiss air flight that flies in every single day to Tanzania bringing goods in and out, right? So how do we enable African countries to trade with each other more often and more frequently um, and also make sure the cost of these trades are low? Um, so with FX losses here and there, with currency uh, volatility with different markets, uh, how do we use the stability of African governments, uh, hopefully long term, uh, to enable businesses to really thrive in these regions is, is the big question that we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge question. And answering that would take... Solve many global problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think it's the question that everyone's essentially been trying to ask, ask or answer since like independence of, of a lot of former uh, African countries, um, of a lot of former like colonial countries. Um and I think there is a lot of change, but there's a lot of drawback. Um, I have a question and I don't know if you have the answer to it because, and it does relate to something you've just said, but what do you see? Obviously Nala trades a lot with the UK and now of course, a lot of European countries. And like, I see you guys on the tube and all these things. Um, but like, what do you see the, I guess, responsibility or is there responsibility to like, for like the diaspora to kind of help with this kind of infrastructure that you're talking about? or the development of all these countries? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think the the question about like, what responsibility do we see the diaspora to help? You know, it's a, it's a big question. Like I, I've been a diaspora myself, right? So when I went to America for the first time, like for grad school, I was diaspora, right? Cause like I used to live in Tanzania and now I live in America and I was going to grad school there. Then I started working there, but my family and everybody lives back home. So like, I'm also trying to support different work and different things, my cousins, my relatives and so on. Like, you know, I think, the African diaspora definitely have a larger burden financially to support their families uh, because there's a whole idea of generational wealth doesn't massively issue in many African families. You don't have families who've been here for five generations in London that have earned so much money they don't like their families are taken care of in, you know, Nigeria. Right. And so when you ask like a lot of African diaspora, like very rarely will you find somebody who's been here in their 40s in the UK that doesn't send money to Africa. Like very rare, uh, unless it's like the new, younger, like whatever woke generation or whatever. You know, I, I joke about it, but you know, it's 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 the thing is like really looking at. Um, there's a lot of weight for like this burden falls around fellow Africans about like trying to build back the continent, you know. But I think the the question that everybody should ask ourselves is to each their own right so like it shouldn't be like every diaspora feeling like they have to help africa right it's it's not that burden should shouldn't be on them but it's the question of what they truly want to do what they're like 
if are you doing it for the praise or are you doing it for your purpose? If you really truly believe that you need to do that and build, help build the continent through technology, through payments, to sending money, to funding projects, I think that's where you can jump in and, and you know, diaspora could be involved. Even like a lot of the work we do, most of our customers are African diaspora in the UK, the US and in Europe, right? Um, and then we have a bunch of people who are also building businesses through Nala. So about 28% of our user base are daily active. And we asked them like, what are you doing? Like, why are you daily active? It's really weird. Cause like most people send money once a month, you're sending money every single day. Like what's going on? And they'll tell us something like, oh, Benji, I'm actually building this business back in Ghana. I'm actually building this business back in Kenya. I'm actually building this business back in Tanzania that I'm trying to run from here and collect revenues so I can use those revenues from there to support my family instead of just keep sending money every single month, right? You know, the other thing that, that you know, even with sending money home, like there's two elements that it also is heavily weighed on. It, it, one is the health industry. But the second one is also the education industry. So like those are the two most popular regions for why reasons for why people send money home. It's like, oh, so-and-so is in hospital. I need to send money to support them. And those aren't small bills. Those are big bills that people have to, you know, take up and, and you know, use their own UK salary to, to help cover, right? And it's not easy. And you might ask us, well, doesn't have everybody have insurance or doesn't the NHS uh, exist in Africa? No, it doesn't. And my first time getting health insurance my whole life was the first time I moved to America. Uh, I didn't ever have health insurance. Even when I moved back to Tanzania, I didn't have health insurance. Uh, recently, when I started, when we were raising our fundraise, our investors, like one of our uh, investors, like during the due diligence process asked me, do you have health insurance? Like, no, I don't, right? Because it's not a common thing. It's not a normal thing. Less than 2% of the African population have health insurance, right? It's not, there's an aspect of trust that's missing. There's an aspect of, you know, I, I was telling my, one of my friends jokingly, I said, building an insurance company in Africa is really hard because your competition is literally Jesus. Right. So like people are like, oh, I'm going to pray. I'll be fine and I'll be OK. Uh, so um, so I think that's one is the healthcare industry. The second one is education. Right. So people want to support loved ones, nephews, nieces, aunties, um, you know, whoever are going to school. Um, but, you know, what what else happens to that money? Does that stop African diaspora from, let's say, you know, in your case, let's say owning a house in London because they've sent 40% of their wealth back to Nigeria, right? Uh, and they could have parked that money to own a house here, then hopefully generationally like that, you know? And so these are the challenges that you particularly see with African diaspora that, you know, and I, and I said, not everybody should be responsible to send money home, but it's to each their own. Like if you want to build the continent, you can. I'm not saying if you're not sending money home, you're not building the content, you can build it from many different ways, right? So like whether you turn into a VC in the tech space or you will a company that, you know, resolves problems African in a tech space locally, um, those are all up to you. I think you bring up some like really interesting points there. Like I, I actually am, what am I like third or fourth generation diaspora on my mum's side, but then I'm like second second or first generation of my dad's so he was the first to come on his side so I've kind of seen it from both perspectives where now I feel like very connected but disconnected from Africa but I don't necessarily feel this obligation to send to do anything but then I think equally I have friends who they want to go and they want to build and all these types of things and sometimes if you if you're born and raised in like the west I equally feel like you you can sometimes think of it in a very Western perspective as though people aren't already doing stuff. Like the business you, you, you're creating, like it was born in Tanzania, it was created in Tanzania. So it's not to say that necessarily like people in Tanzania aren't 
Tanzania don't see these problems or people in Nigeria don't see these issues, but the infrastructure is not there for them to do something. Like I've met the smartest people I know in Nigeria, but equally, you know, it's a small percentage of the population and it's a very, very big country. So I feel like sometimes the diaspora can, I guess, see it from like a perspective where you, you, you're kind of re, you're kind of doing a lot of the things that you hate that like, the, I guess, like colonization brought where you're trying to tell people how to run a country just because like you've had a Western education and stuff. So, so I think, feel like it's a very specific and interesting fine line. And the insurance bit is very funny. I think you're definitely right. You're essentially competing with God. And I think the education element is an easier sell than telling people there's something wrong because it's just not built into the fabric of the society. <laughs> so when people do see it, they, I don't know. Yeah, it's like last on their list. Although I feel like that's changing. Like, well, the last time I went to Nigeria, I feel like hospitals or just doctors, the doctors in general is not necessarily seen as much of more of a privilege and more of a kind of needs to happen. So I do, I do feel like, I do, I do see it changing quite a bit, but then equally it's so, it's so big that it's like, I'm really only talking about a specific part of the country that's very developed and has a lot of good infrastructure. And I was wondering, do you have like, you, you can say no if you don't, but do you have like a fact or stat that you've like read recently that you thought was quite, quite interesting to do with this topic? I think one thing that's interesting is the African cross-border trade volume has doubled in the last two years. And there's no other region in the world where that's happened. And I think there's many pull and push factors from this. For example, sometimes there was trades that were happening through cash on planes like people carrying money literally on planes and cash to do transactions and trades. And because of COVID, it's spearheaded a lot of those transactions to become digital. So those trades are still happening regardless, but now they're actually digitally tracked. And so people are like, oh, wow, okay, this market is actually bigger than we initially assumed. For example, Helen, I'm, I'm sure you see this, like I can pull up WhatsApp groups upon WhatsApp groups of even like Nigerians in the UK sending money to Nigeria. And you have all these WhatsApp groups and everyone's like, who's got Naira? I've got pounds. I'll give you pounds here. Give me Naira in, in Nigeria. And I, I'm i in like 15 or 20 of these WhatsApp groups just in the UK alone of Nigerians. And people are like, this is how people send money, right? But the point I'm trying to make is those transactions aren't tracked, right? And so what's my point is how big is the market truly? Like there's official numbers that will say like, okay, the market size is this big, but then unofficial numbers is maybe, you know, 60 to 70% of the true volume. Like if I take you to East London, Helen, and we go get a haircut, my barber in East London, I ask him, I was like, hey, like, I remember the first time somebody told me about this, I didn't believe them. I went to get a haircut in East London, like, you know, Barking area, Dagenham, th th those neighborhoods. Uh, and literally you get your haircut and then you ask the barber, like, hey, I want to send money to Kenya or Ghana. The barber will pull up his cell phone and ask you, which rate do you want? And show you like maybe 30 WhatsApp groups with different rates. And then you pick the rate and I tried this, you pick the rate and you give him cash or like send it bank transfer to his account and the money will literally arrive in Kenya or Ghana within an hour, right? And so there's whole ecosystems of global transactions to African economies built on trust, built through WhatsApp, right? And so true market size is significantly massive that most people actually don't realize how big it truly is. No, I, I, I do you know what? This isn't the same example, but I was at a wedding, Nigerian wedding on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And if you, I don't know if you've ever so been fun. to Nigerian wedding, but we, we yeah, obviously spray. So we, we spray people cash. with money. Yeah, with cash. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that we're not in, 
America, we use we use dollars. So like you'll go to a wedding and there'll be these guys, I can't remember what their names are, and they're just at the back with a bunch of dollars. <laughs> They're, mo- they're essentially like money exchange people and like any Nigerian like it's not like you think oh where are these people they're always there like it's like it's their job they go to every single wedding and it, I have the other day I was thinking about it the other day because I was like that is quite bizarre like I, I don't see that in any other part of my life because everything is digital and not only is it digital why are they why do they have dollars it's bizarre but it's not bizarre because like it's part of the culture it's entrenched within what we do, what's this, what we do, how we trust. And essentially they'll tell you the rate. It's not like I've ever looked up like how much is the $20 that I'm buying or whatever it is. I just take it and I accept it and I spray it on the couple getting married. And so that I get what you mean. Cause there are these, a lot of these, like, str- <laughs> I was going to say strange, but they're not even strange. They're just inbuilt things that I feel like with cash and like my culture we just do but we don't even think about it because we're like this is just the system and this is how the system goes and we're just going to do it and I think I even saw that in Gambia because to your point like um on the strip the main strip there's like money it's like a whole strip of money exchanges and you go into every single one and every single one is giving you like a different rate just to beat the other one but you're just trusting all these systems and you're not even necessarily sure what the back end of it looks like you just know that they've been doing this since the beginning of time so you just you just do it with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah. And and you just it's it's built it's part of the culture, it's built on trust. And yeah, like trust beats everything at the end of the day. So how do you build that trust into Nala? Like Nala's digital. You're trying to kind of get people away from that cash society. So how do you build that into a digital product? Great question. So one of the things that's really interesting for us is one of the things that have has worked really well for us, one of the our premises that we built Nala on is just like transparency. For example, if you go to our website, our roadmap is there. We tell our customers every single thing we're building and people are like, aren't you crazy? Like your competitors are going to look at that. I'm like, cool, competition makes us all better. If anything, it raises the bar of stuff they should have built a long time ago, quite frankly, right? And then even with our customers, we try to do customer meetups. So every city we're in, we're like, okay, cool. We're hosting this meetup with our customers and our customers show out. Uh, like a week and a half, two weeks ago, I was in Boston and like, we tied a customer event with 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 one of these athletes that were coming into town, a Tanzanian athlete. And we had like 150 people show up to meet us uh, as Nala, right? And that sort of thing builds us trust because people were like, trust a brand, trust people behind the company. And we're very honest about stuff. And so f- for trust building for us, like it's many elements. One is transparency through telling people about um, uh, like what we're building and what why we're building it. So like if they make a request, we add the request to the board and like we tell them when it's going to be prioritized. People know when that we're going to build what they've asked for. The second thing is through community events. So we do a lot of community events in different communities, like Ghanaian communities, Ugandan communities, Tanzanian communities, you know, Rwandan communities and be able to build trust that way. The third thing is we're honest. So for example, if you open the null application, there's a compare rates button and we will tell you about our rates and our competitors' rates. And we will tell you when our competitor has better rates than us. We'll tell you like, hey, today we're not the best. Truly we aren't. And you can open the app right now, you can read it. And like, you know, truthfully we aren't the best, but you know what that leads to, Helen? Nine out of 10 customers after one year still use Nala because of that, because we're honest, right? And so even though we're not the best, like we tell people we're not the best. And I think that for us builds a better long lasting business for us long-term versus just trying to hype on small wins here and there and, and that aren't long-term sustainable. Um, other things we do to build trust is 
we really try to like tell people when we suck. So for example, if there's a bank transfer that's delayed to Nigeria or Ghana or something, we will tell people like, hey, look, this is what happened. And here's why this happened. And we write that in our copy. Obviously, some people don't care. Uh, but you know, for the people who do, like it, it reassures them that we as Nala didn't run away with their money or like put their money somewhere else. We we're like, here's what happened, here's where it failed. Obviously, people are still upset, but I think versus just saying, oh, it's delayed, I think people would be more upset if we didn't tell them the why behind why it's delayed. That's so funny. Um, you know Oatly, the the milk brand. Well, the vegan, well, it's oat milk. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. I, I think I've said it's British, right? Yeah, so, okay, so it's it's an oat milk brand and they have this whole section on their website, which, so so they've, they've had a lot of, um, I guess, um, controversy and they've got this whole section on their website where they, they write down, they, they create links to all the controversies they've had so that people can kind of, essentially all the all the all the things that people want to boycott and stuff but i think in a lot of ways it's quite similar to what you're doing where you're building like i know that i would use it because they're they're not trying to hide anything you're trying to say like (laughs) we're not we we sometimes mess up but that's all right and i feel like that like you said creates people wanting to actually use it again um I'm going to move on because we're running out of time. Just two quick things. I'm going to ask you the question, the last question that the last guest asked. And it was, what regrets do you have on your journey as a founder? None, to be honest. Like, I'm not a person who lives life with regret. I think everything happens for a reason. I think if God's put you on this earth, like there was a reason why those things happen. There's lessons that you learn from them. Obviously, there's things that I would do differently with hindsight. But you know, I, it's not like oh, I'm going to sit down and cry over spilt milk. Like, oh, I wish I should have, could have, would have, right? Because then you'll say that forever about every single thing in life, right? So, however, with hindsight, what would I have done differently? I think I would have been bolder with many things. You know, like as you're building a tech business, like, look, I didn't grow up in a family that had tech entrepreneurs or VC-backed companies and so on, right? So, like, as I'm jumping to this journey, like, I knew the mentality of build a stable business, make sure it's profitable, make sure the unit economics makes sense and all this other stuff. Then you go to Silicon Valley and you realize all these people are raising money on vibes and like, you're like, oh wow, like cool. This is how it's happening. Okay, cool. And then like tell a really cool story and some investor gives them like $10 million to build like a Google Chrome extension. I'm like, a Google Chrome extension got that. Like, if you give me $10 million, I'll make magic happen in Africa. Like, things will, like, you build a proper, proper business, right? And, you know, with that, you know, while, while I give that example, I think, you know, we, we live in a world where, like, opportunity is everywhere, but the distribution of opportunity isn't, right? And so, as I start to learn and build the business, um, I really start to look at, what things could I have been bolder with what I wanted to do? Like, what are some of the state things that like, okay, cool, you know what? Let's just do this. And I think I've gotten significantly better on that over the last three, four years. And, you know, what I tell our team is, is two things. One, if you don't take responsibility, you take orders. And I think that's a principle of life. And then the, the second one is like, I think indecisiveness is so dangerous. So I'd rather put a stake in the ground and be wrong versus not trying at all. And I think, you know, some people wait, 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 because they're too scared of being wrong. But I'm, right now, I'm too scared of trying and like not not like not even knowing, right? And asking myself, what if? Um, and so I think that's the approach, obviously, with proper judgment and so on. Don't go and do something crazy and say, oh, I heard Benji say it on a podcast. But really think strategically about like, all right, what's what's a big bet? Like, let's be bold about this. Let's really think strategically about this and, and put a stake in the ground and 
put our money where our mouth is. And like, I think that those are some of the things I would have done um, older earlier. I think, yeah, we, we've went through a lot as a company. Uh, like Helen, when you, when we first met, uh, we were just coming out from a pivot. We built this entire business in Tanzania, grew to a certain 250,000 customers, and then had to shut down that entire business. And then we were pivoting to international money transfer. And that was one of the hardest moments for me as a founder ever. Um, and I remember many people are saying like, oh, just shut it down. Okay, cool. Good job. Like it was a good run, whatever, like, you know, return investor money, like close shop, like restart a business, whatever. And I had to, you know, talk to my CEO and CTO and tell them like, hey, guys, look, let's go at it again um, and restart all over from zero. Helen, I'd never lived in England before, ever, before we launching a business here. Today, our largest customer base is in the UK. I remember the first time I was trying to come to England on my Tanzanian passport when we were red listed. I flew through Uganda for four, I spent 14 days in Uganda. I got sent back to Tanzania. I flew through Amsterdam. I got sent back to Tanzania. I flew through Doha. I got sent back to Tanzania. I went and got a visa to go to America just so I can get to England um, to meet our customers for the first time while trying to build this business during the pandemic. I get to England. They're like, oh, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm going to see Stonehenge because like, you know, I'm on a tourism visa. I can't work. So I had to like make something up to just get into the country. And so like, I'm trying my best to build this business as an entrepreneur, right? Like today, like this time last year, we had like 12, 13 people at the company. Today we have 91 uh, in the last 12 months, right? And did I think that would happen? Did I think, you know, like we'd be where we are today? Absolutely not. Could I have written it like this? Absolutely not. Like, you know, but I was just push our team to really focus on the problem, focus on our customers. And like, that's why our retention rate is so high. Like if we truly fall in love with the problem, we're going to build solutions that are going to be effective and massively valuable for our business. I do think you make a good point there because it's, it's really, really, it's number one, just on a side note, I, I do think it's so difficult when you have a, a passport, like passport privilege is a real thing and being able to build on, being able to do anything really, it's a privilege. Like it's a privilege to be born somewhere that allows you to move around, allows you to meet people, places, etc. And you're even just that obstacle is just so difficult. Like I think being born and raised in the UK, sometimes it's easy to be like, I'm just gonna go here, I'm just gonna go there. Brexit has made it a little bit more difficult, but not anything compared to anyone who has a passport that's non-Western, essentially. Like the reality is you can go anywhere. And and like I said, you're not just trying to do tourism you're trying to actually build something so it's really really difficult and so I'm always in awe of everybody because it's just not fair it's honestly not fair and then secondly yeah I just think it's you everyone chooses like their path in life and you sometimes you are the kind of worker and sometimes you are the person leading the ball and sometimes you just sit chilling because you're born rich and you don't have to do anything and we all have to kind of decide and I think all three paths are great well um because they're just different elements of your life and not what what isn't for the other and vice versa. So yeah, it's difficult, but yeah, I think it's about being bold, like you said. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. Um, uh, just a quick fire. It has nothing to do with FinTech. It's just random questions. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Would you rather live in a world with no caffeine or a world with only raw food? No caffeine. I don't really drink coffee. I don't drink coffee at all. So no caffeine's good. What would be the tagline to the sitcom of your life? That's a red flag. That's a red flag. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a red flag. The fact that that's a red flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, what meal or food do you think represents you? Chicken, always. Would you rather perform surgery or fly a commercial plane without qualifications? Fly a commercial plane without qualifications. Yeah, why is that? I don't know. I think surgery, I'd just be like, well, the moment I see like blood, I'm secure, I'm out. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just gonna faint. Uh, but like flying a plane, a plane, a, being a pilot was one of my dream like jobs when I was a kid. Uh, I'm sure many people like have that dream. I want to be a pilot, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I think probably flying a commercial okay. plane because I think it'd be fun to figure out like what this button does. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> okay, yeah, you'll figure it out. But fair enough. I think I'm the same, to be fair. Would you rather speak all languages or be able to speak to all animals? I think I'd rather speak all languages. I think languages are so powerful. Like today, I, I joined this call with like this large German cross-border payments company and I spoke to them in German and they were like, whoa. Uh, I learned German for 10 years. Um, so like, this guy's like shocked. Like, how are you Tanzanian? Speak German, speak English. Like, huh? Um, and then recently I took Chinese for two years in, in grad school and I think the ROI of learning two years of basic Chinese is way higher than any other language I've learned. <laughs> Chinese is so difficult. I, di I did it for a bit as well when I was in university and just I think because you have to wrap your head around just a whole new concept of like the structure of like things. So I, I found that very difficult. Um, but I found it closer to like Yoruba in a weird way than I did English. Not that Yoruba is like Chinese, but I think maybe it's something to do with the pronunciation. What other languages do you speak? I speak English, German, Swahili, and then elementary Chinese. That's a lot, but no, no animal languages. Um, would you rather work more hours a day, but have longer weekends or fewer hours a day with more work days? Ooh, it depends on who you asked. If you ask my assistant, she'd probably tell you that I need to sleep more. Um, if you asked me, I'd rather work. I'd rather have more hours in a day, to be honest. <laughs> so I can do more things. Spelling B or maths B? Maths B, all day. Yeah, okay. Um, I would do spelling. Would you rather have to hop around on one foot or always have to squat? Hop around on one foot. I think I'd uh, never skip leg day. And lastly, only have liquidized food or never hear music? Uh, I, I need music, so I only have liquidized food. Okay, lots of protein shakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd rather do that. I, I love music. <laughs> and okay, last, I keep saying last question, but this is the last question. What do you think we should ask the next friend? What matters to them most in life and why? What matters to them most in life and why? Deep. Okay, I'm going to write that down. That's a good question. All right, Benji, this has been pleasant. I feel like I've learned so much about you. And it's been, yeah, it's just been cute. Um, so thank you so much for coming on Hey Fintech Friends. For sure, yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, say hi to the team. Signals is our subscriber-only reads. And I'm going to read you a snippet from one of the latest articles. Every fintech will be an AI company, Q2. Each quarter, we break down four questions on fintech activity. Number one, which concepts are getting funded? Number two, where are the exits, M&As and SPACs concentrated? Number three, which firms are raising debt and venture funds for fintech? And number four, what products were launched over the last quarter? Which concepts are getting funded? Venture funds struggling to raise fresh funding has less VCs with the lowest level of capital since 2017, which doesn't pay a great outlook for funding in the near future. 
This didn't stop capital from flowing across all fintech concepts in Q2. Areas that received the most funding were consumer financing, investment structure, business financial management, payments B2B and B2C. To read the rest of this article, please subscribe to the This Week in Fintech newsletter and of course, this podcast. Okay, so for events coming up on the 22nd of July, we have the FinTech Picnic 2023 happening in New York. We also have the This Week in FinTech Mexico City Summer Social happening on the 27th of July. The 4th of August is the This Week in FinTech Seattle Bank Happy Hour happening on the 3rd of August, which happens to also be my birthday. Um, And then on the 7th of August, we also have the FinTech Job Fair, which is virtual. 